Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How are you doing, Dave? Doing well. Uh, two weeks left in Texas before we go back to California. Looking forward to California beaches. Looking forward to California beer. Not looking forward to California school reopening policy, however, but more to be said about that later. Yeah, we will get to that in just a minute. Understand late breaking news, which is not happy news for the Corbin family. No, on two fronts, uh, on, on our own kids schooling and, and uh, our college, Providence in, in Pasadena. So, but we'll get to it. How, how are you doing? How, how's New York? Yeah, we're doing well. We got back from our time in Pennsylvania. Uh, earlier in the week. And that was really good. I don't think we fully appreciated how much we needed that. We knew, but but then you go there and just feel that stress level decrease day by day. And and then, you know, it's time to get back to things and I'm, I'm ready to do that. But but it was really good to have that time away and be able to spend a, a good long time with my parents. That was special. Kids made some more steps in terms of their swimming and water sports and things like that. So that's always fun when you're at that stage as the kids are learning new skills and, and making progress that way. So it was good. It was good, kind of a good recharge. And, and we're now ready to go, get ready for the fall semester, whatever format that turns out to be. And yeah, we were able to get our kids into a camp, which was amazing uh, in New Braunfels. And uh, they complained about camp. We're like, you're complaining about going out and meeting other kids? And <laughs> what are you thinking? You know, how have we coddled you to this point? But uh, uh, they're fishing today and uh, enjoyed it. So they're, uh, they're done with their camp week. And, and now we just have two weeks to go. And the other thing, it's been over 100 degrees for 14 straight days. So oh, that, wow. uh, even like beyond normal Texas heat. And uh, it's not bad. You, you do get used to it. But between 12 and 6 p.m., you just don't go outside. You just stay inside and do air conditioning or prepare for the show, whatever it may be. <laughs> very good. Yeah. Very good. Well, our very first episode, now two months ago, hard to believe, focused on the state-by-state reopening that was accelerating at that point and the partisan debate that surrounded it. And a lot obviously has changed since then, uh, except for the partisanship. We have more of that in different dimensions. So we're going to revisit reopening today. And we're going to focus, as you've already suggested, on schools. So let's start with some of the headlines to get the context of the debate. As we've been finding out, again, even in the last hours, more and more school districts are announcing their reopening plans. Uh, Noah Rothman, interesting piece at Commentary earlier this week, notes one important dynamic in this debate, which is teachers' versus parents, and it's not exactly the way you'd expect it to go. You might expect the teachers eager for the students to come back and the parents more reticent, but it's actually the other way around. Now, the teachers' unions in a number of large cities, including Los Angeles, have overwhelmingly voted against reopening, while at least in general, pluralities and sometimes majorities of parents of school-aged children are, are ready to go back. And sometimes they're talking about some kind of hybrid form. Sometimes they're talking about full five-day week. But in general, online all the time is not the parent's choice. 
So he concludes his piece in this way, which I think is an interesting connection between the broader political moment we're in and this debate over school reopening. He says, until and unless these parents resolve to organize in the way teachers and administrators have, they will continue to be dismissed by their elected officials. It has been clear for some time that political currency is now a function of the size of the crowd you can summon into the streets. It was a terrible precedent to set, but it is nonetheless now fully established. That's how the game is played, and parents will have to learn how to play it. I'm not sure he's optimistic about that happening in the next four or five weeks. Now, if you think about this dynamic and the parents and teachers, obviously those are groups that cut across party and ideological lines, but there's a lot of evidence that party and ideology are at work here as well. So I mentioned the LA school district where the teachers union, 83% voted against reopening schools as scheduled on August 18th. But then they also released this research paper that was meant to sort of lay out the ground rules for what it would mean to have everything in place for a safe reopening. And that included defunding the police, limits on charter schools, and Medicare for all. So obviously throwing in kind of the broader progressive agenda into this more particular question about what to do about school reopening. And they also, didn't they put forward a pay cut of 25%? I don't remember that being part of the proposal. So wow. just before we recorded, as, as you were following closely, uh, Governor Newsom of California announced a new policy, which affects not just the particular school districts that had previously announced their plans, but the whole state. Now, since you were following that closely, I'll turn it over to you to, to give us a basic sense of, of where things are in California moving forward. Yeah, so huge news out of California. Uh, 40 million people live there, so... Uh, more than 10% of the country is in California, and uh, the governor today had a press conference in which he suggested that uh, no public or private K-12 through schools could open if they existed uh, in a county that was on the watch list. Currently, 83% of the population in California are in those counties where there is that watch list. Many more could go on it, and it's really a hit. I mean, not just a personal hit. I mean, we had a we had a situation where we were sending both Jack and Eliza to a Hillsdale charter school in Orange County, and we were excited because they weren't going to have masks and they weren't going to have social distancing. They had kind of taken a look at the science. Their, one of their founders is a medical doctor, kind of well-versed in all these things, and, and now that decision's been taken out of the hands of Orange County. It's been taken out of the hands of parents, and uh, we don't know uh, about reopening in person because the the standard is so strict to be able to reopen in person. You have to get off of the county watch list. And even if you're not on that county watch list, you're one of those lucky 17% of the California population who's not on it. If one person in one class gets tested positive for COVID-19, that whole class has to go home for two weeks. Uh, if 5% of a school's classes or population test positive, that whole school closed. If 25% of the schools within a district reach that bar, then that district is closed. And what makes it more difficult, Matt, is that uh, the testing is on the rise in California. I actually think testing is a great thing. I think testing and figuring out where a community is, is is great. But if you're testing over 100,000 people every day, 
but you're having the standard whereby one person tests positive in a class, the whole class uh, has to go home and thereafter, um, you know, the school district, et cetera, then you've set such a low bar to meet for closure that my guess would be a month or two months from now, many of the schools that are under the watch list will not be open and many more that are currently able to open won't be able to open. And um, the second hit that, that, that we'll take is what that'll mean for colleges and universities. And, and I think it's, it's a shame. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on my soapbox now, but I think that I know that you've been doing this at the King's College. Certainly I've been working with my colleagues at Providence and we've been trying as much as possible uh, to be reasonable and, and to take a look at what precautions we can use and, and, and to put into place those precautions so that we best secure uh, some level of safety, but we do so uh, while maintaining our responsibilities as teachers and, and, and to educate uh, something that's so essential to the proper functioning of society. So off the soapbox, but not good news out of California. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how the Trump administration responds to that because they've been very emphatic on the need for public schools to reopen. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos was on the Sunday shows last week making that case. Just to give a little flavor of this, it was, it was not easy for her. On CNN State of the Union, uh, Dana Bash was the host. This is how she begins. Let me start by sharing that everybody shares the same goal. They want children to be back in school. So what I want to ask you about today, Madam Secretary, is how we do that safely. You said this week, quote, that there's nothing in the data that suggests it would not be appropriate to have kids in school. So I want to look, take a look at the data. The U.S. had a record number of new cases on Friday. The number of new cases per day is higher now in 45 of the 50 states than when schools shut down in March. Hospitalizations are climbing in several states, and some ICUs are at or near capacity. So yes or no, can you assure students, teachers, parents, that they will not get coronavirus because they're going back to school, right, in the best prosecutorial tone? Yes or no. Imagine. Yes, <laughs> yes or, or no. no. Yes or no. Well, Secretary DeVos did not take the bait and replied, I think, in a rather sensible way. She says this, well, the key is that kids have to get back to school. And we know there are going to be hotspots, and those need to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. But the rule should be that kids go back to school this fall. They've been missing months of learning. Many of them are going to be so far behind, difficult to catch up. And we know that this is a matter of their health in a multitude of factors or multitude of dimensions. We know that their emotional well-being, their mental well-being, and particularly for kids from low-income and vulnerable populations, this is devastating to be out of school and not learning for months on end. So, I mean, you have to notice the framing of the question, yes or no, right? assuring that people won't get sick. But I think beyond the unfairness of framing a question in, in that way, a question that obviously is complex and requires more than a yes or no answer, if yes is the only way you get to reopen schools, if you have to be assured that no one will get sick, then schools are never reopening. And that's, a, that's an impossible standard for any any community to meet. Now, but if you employ that same, sorry, Matt, but if you employ that same standard with, with any kind of regular flu season, you would not have schools reopening at all. Can you assure me, yes or no, that no student will catch the flu this year in this district? And the answer, like an honest answer is, I can't assure you that. So it, setting the question up that way and where, where um, you don't put the secretary in a position to be able to answer it in a reasonable manner, 
and and go through the statistics of what's going on with this age group, which are, are pretty stark. Is it's just it's beyond unfair. It's it's uh it's 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 already deciding the political matter for the people of America before they have a chance to kind of reflect upon it. Well, and of course, with the classic opening, let me start by sharing that everybody shares the same goal. Of course, we all want children back in school, right? So you're, we're all on the good team, but unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do the thing that we all want because if one person can get sick, well, then I'm sorry. Although we really, really want this to work out some other way, we're disappointed we're not able to have school at this time. Right. And Governor Newsom said something similar in his press conference today. He said, learning is non-negotiable. Well, it, it's non-negotiable, but it can be ruined by bad policymaking. And, and so, but you're not going to talk about that. And, and, but as long as you have that mantra at the beginning of your press conference, or you say, neither is safety negotiable, well, you, we have to negotiate public policy. We have to take a look at uh, data. We have to figure out you know, right policy, wrong policy, knowing that we're not always going to be right and knowing there's no perfect solution whenever you're dealing with a policy matter. Living in a world of uncertainty isn't just about making the decisions regarding reopening schools in a context of coronavirus. It's every moment of every day. One of the benefits of this, if we can call it that, and if we can actually see it, is that it's just a reminder of the fact that we live life in a world of uncertainty, where we are not God, where we don't have the power or the wisdom or the goodness to accomplish all that we would otherwise desire. And we have to recognize those limitations. And, you know, and, and events like these can be helpful for us in that way if, if we will learn the lesson. But if we somehow have this idea, and of course, this is such a big part of the modern project that we can conquer nature, we can conquer disease, we can conquer death, we can conquer every social problem. It's just a matter of time, effort, and stick to and of course, the right people wielding the right amount of power. If we buy into that, then this is the direction we're going to go, right? We're going to demand of people that they have a perfect solution to a problem that is inherently insoluble one more uncertainty we have to deal with in a world of uncertainties, one more risk we have to deal with in a world of, of risks. Let's, let's look at the data here. So we, we've, we've seen the politics, uh, and maybe we're not surprised by that if, if we're disappointed, but let's, let's look at the data. So um, Florida happens to have probably the best database online, all the details available. So we're going to zero in there to try to get a sense of what are the actual risks that, that children going back to school would have to bear. And I just say, like, if, if you're listening and, and you go on our website, go and look at, at this data set. It's, a, it's an amazing accumulation of data over the last four months. I haven't seen anything like it where they go through every single demographic and, and show you what's happening in Florida. So I, I definitely recommend you go and look at that if you haven't. And as always, we'll have all the links in the show notes so you can grab that at Podbean or any of the other uh, services that you use to get your podcasts. So according to the Census Bureau, about 20% of Florida residents are minors under 18. And through July 7th, which is the latest version of what they call their pediatric report, about 7% of cases of COVID-19 in Florida have been minors. So so you do the math there and you recognize that the 
risk of infection appears to be about one third for minors what it is for the general population. Now that's a, a figure that we're calculating from rough numbers, but that is actually a figure that has been confirmed approximately other studies, somewhere between a third and one half the risk. So you start with a lower risk of infection. If you have an infection, however, then you also have a much lower risk of hospitalization. So about 1.3% of children who get coronavirus have been hospitalized. The general population is over 6%. So it's about one-fifth as likely that a child will be hospitalized with coronavirus as a member of the general, general population. And then in terms of deaths, there have been no deaths in Florida of children nine years old and younger, and only four in terms of minors, so between 10 and 17. So the overall death rate is 1.5% in Florida. The death rate for people under 18 is 0.02%. So it's about 63 times greater death rate for those that are older than those that are under 18. Now, look, these are individual cases where being told as a grieving parent that your child died in a statistically improbable way is no comfort, right? There are deep tragedies connected with every single one of those deaths, with every death of every cause. But policymakers have to be able to judge matters in broad terms, have to be able to make policies that are wise collectively, and of course, allow people individual freedom to make judgment calls, because obviously, even within those cohorts, within that group of under 18s, there are some who, because of their medical situation or medical history, are a much higher risk than others. So even within that lower risk group, there are certainly those for whom there's a greater risk if they, if they get COVID-19. That's the general picture. Um, now, how about schools in particular? So because American schools essentially shut down for good in March, we don't really have a lot of American data that we can look at, but there's been some studies that have been done of other countries. There's 23 countries that either kept their schools open, there were a couple that did that all the way through, or a larger group, 20 schools, that reopened and finished out the school year. So we've got data from those schools. There was a particularly interesting study from Germany that was in the news this last week, where you had this uh, community where there were 16 German states that decided to reopen their schools with full class sizes in May. And there was some pushback from parents on that. And so they said, okay, well, we're gonna do this, but we, we will do a fully scientific study of what happens. We're gonna do testing, we're gonna monitor this. We're, we're, we're gonna see if this is a mistake and if it is a mistake, we'll be able to adjust because we'll have the data. So this is one of the few places where we have this kind of a, a really good data set to do some analysis on. The results suggested the virus does not spread easily in schools. This is the article summarizing the study. The study tested 2,045 children and teachers at 13 schools, including some where there have been cases of the virus. But scientists found antibodies in just 12 of those who took part. The study was carried out at schools in three different districts in the region of Saxony, and I mentioned the significance of Saxony there. Five of those who took part had previously tested positive for the virus. 
The study's authors said the fact that only seven others were found to have antibodies suggested the virus did not spread rapidly in the school setting. Another 24, this is interesting too, another 24 of those who took part had family members who had tested positive, but only one of these was found to have developed antibodies. This means the majority of school children do not get infected themselves despite an infection in the household, said Professor Berner. So you think about the obvious close contact between parents and children. Nevertheless, only one of the 24 who had a family member test positive had the antibodies themselves. So that's, that's the results of Germany. Obviously, very encouraging results in terms of the concerns of those parents and the overall possibility of, of doing schooling in this, in this context. Now, there's a, another article uh, at the Science uh, Journal that reports on those broader experiences of the 23 countries that I was mentioning earlier. And this is kind of their, their top line summary. When science looked at reopening strategies from South Africa to Finland to Israel, some encouraging patterns emerged. Together, they suggest a combination of keeping student groups small and requiring masks and some social distancing helps keep schools and communities safe, and that younger children rarely spread the virus to one another or bring it home. But opening safety experts agree isn't just about the adjustments the school makes, it's also about how much virus is circulating in the community, which affects the likelihood that students and staff will bring COVID-19 into their classrooms. And it goes on, it's a long article, certainly worth uh, reading carefully, and there's a lot of details and nuance. But one of the questions, obviously, as we focused on children, that's an important question as you think about the broader implications of this, is well, what about the parents? What about the teachers? What about the staff of the schools? What, what kind of risk are they running? Even if the children don't easily get infected, are there serious dangers for those that are in and around school children and schools? So the article argues, because children so rarely develop severe symptoms, experts have cautioned that open schools might pose a much greater risk to teachers, family members, and the wider community than the students themselves. However, early data from European countries suggest the risk to the wider community is small. At least when local infection rates are low, opening schools with some precautions does not seem to cause a significant jump in infections elsewhere. It's hard to be sure because in most places, schools reopen in concert with other aspects of public life. But in Denmark, nationwide case numbers continue to decline after daycare centers and elementary schools open on 15th of April, and middle and high schools followed in May. In the Netherlands, new cases stayed flat and then dropped after elementary schools opened part-time on 11th of May, and high schools opened on the 2nd of June. In Finland, Belgium, and Austria, two officials say they found no evidence of increased spread of the novel coronavirus after schools. What do you make of all that, Dave? I understand, and, and you mentioned this before um, graciously, that it, if if one individual dies and that's your son or daughter, that you're, you're heartbroken and there's nothing that anyone's going to be able to say to you about probability that's going to change your mind. That you, you, That's what we all fear. We don't want anything to happen to our children. We don't like anything to happen to anyone that we love, but we live in a, a world of uncertainty. But if major public policy decisions are being made and uh, being, um, argued from the standpoint of science, and yet science and data are not being employed in those decisions, then there's you know, some major disconnect that's going on. And I just don't think that 
that these decisions made by states like California or New York or whatever it may be will be reversed unless people wake up and begin to, to get a scientific grip on reality and get away or move away from this kind of herd-like, sheep-like mentality whereby uh, risk averseness uh, to the extreme leads you to make decisions that are bad for your children. The desire to find some one-size-fits-all solution or just, just the one data point that's going to give you the, the right answer and then to make those thresholds so low that it's almost impossible for anybody to meet the criteria for reopening, all that suggests a failure to appreciate the broader dimensions of this debate. That's really where we want to go with our required reading, that just avoiding infection and the problems that come from that with regard to health doesn't really capture the whole of the questions, even surrounding health, that are at stake in all this. Uh, we've got the spiritual health of individuals, their educational development, their character formation, their psychological well-being. All of these are factors that are maybe difficult to quantify. We don't, we don't easily come up with charts and graphs to demonstrate these things. And yet, if we're actually talking about caring for the whole person, whether we're talking about children or adults, we've got to be thinking about these things as well. well let's turn our attention now to your required reading, Dave, and, and uh, see what you've got for us this week. I'm going to start my required readings with the following precept. Learning is (laughs) non-negotiable. Education is non-negotiable. Of course, uh, I say that tongue in cheek. Um, uh, Education is is very negotiable. It's negotiated uh, in large part by whether it's done well or not. Uh, And uh, anyone who's ever studied the subject of education with serious intellectual honesty knows that there can be a lot of diseducation that takes place. So um, on the subject of why return to school, I'd like to focus on what education is. Is education merely the transmission of knowledge, the right set of facts laid out, collated, delivered, consumed, uh, then tested to ensure that they were properly digested by a student? In other words, is education mere conditioning, a conditioning that can be produced on the one hand through human interactivity, or on the other hand, without or through virtual forms of human interactivity? If so, we can certainly assume that the move to online education will accomplish something positive. But what is lost in the move to the more impersonal online distance or virtual realm? So that's kind of one thing that was kind of in my mind today as we uh, approach or this week as we approach the subject of reopening. And then the second is just what responsibility do we have as teachers? Uh, You're a teacher, Matt, and so am I. Uh, We're not given that great street creed of first responders, except I remind you at Staples where you can get 15% off or Michael's or whatever it may be, or August is always a great month for us. You show your teacher badge and they'll give you some money off or it's also good during a school budget campaign season to mention that you're a teacher, but, but you know, in reality, we may not be first responders as teachers, but we may be even something more important first inculcators. What's it mean to be a teacher? What's it mean to teach? It, it means really to kind of share with a young person those ideas about reality, about their own life, about their own person that will shape them from there on. 
teaching is central to human life. It's central to human existence. Those societies that have been able to teach their young well are societies that tend to prosper. Those societies that are based upon bad teachings, bad ideas, are societies that tend to have bad consequences. So when we think about whether to reopen or not, we can think about it merely as a public safety issue. But what have we thought about it in terms of an, an education issue? What have we thought about it in terms of uh, what we're planting in or inculcating into the next generation, which for the a year or two of the life of a political community is incredibly important. So Matt, the, the theme of my required reading for today is the difference between what would some might call the old education and the new education. What older educators looked at as the, the end of education and what some new educators look at it. As and and I want to I want to assign three readings. I'm not going to be able to get through these readings today, but I'd have uh, our our listenership listen or uh, read these and 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 kind of um, try to go through them and get a sense as to why I assign the three. The first is uh, Plato's Phaedrus, where Socrates talks about rhetoric. Uh, the second is uh, selections from Hobbes' Leviathan. And the third is C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And, and I think I can kind of draw out quickly the connections between these different readings and, and showcase why these would be important as we consider why would we reopen, reopen schools and, and what does it matter to have a good education versus a bad education. One of the interesting things when you, when you consider anything that Plato wrote, Plato wrote 37 dialogues. Most of them have Socrates as the main character of the dialogue. But Plato, interestingly enough, even though he writes dialogues, he's very critical of writing. He's very critical of writing as a, a transmission of knowledge or of wisdom. He's critical of Homer. Uh, and yet he does this uh, having written all of these dialogues. But I think there's a reason why Plato suggests that, that writing as opposed to in-person instruction uh, is, is a less um, impactful way uh, to teach human beings. And that is the following. Had there been no Socrates in Plato's life, had there been no in-person education of Plato by Socrates, then there probably wouldn't have been any Socratic character to capture in a dialogue. You see, what Socrates was doing in real life as a teacher in the Athenian public square as someone who was inspiring the love of wisdom in others, was central to Plato's life, was central to Plato's uh, task to try to capture what Socrates had done in a written form. And I think you see this in the Phaedrus where Socrates uh, praises Pericles uh, as the, one of the best rhetoricians living in Athens of that day, uh, and then kind of suggests, well, what is, the, what is the rhetorician doing? What is the teacher doing uh, when they're doing something positive for those that they teach. And here Socrates says that that teacher is practicing upon the soul something similar to what a medical doctor practices upon the human body. And it has to be something done in person. You have to take on the subject of what the human soul is with another human being in person. You have to take on how the soul is acted upon or acts upon another in the human person. You see, 
education is not um, is not abstract persuasion. It's not uh, a persuasion from afar. It's a persuasion from actually seeing the example of the teacher in person with the student, looking at a student's eyes, understanding where that student is, understanding the, the sadness or the tragedy or the hope or the curiosity that may be moving that student, and coming up with a language that turns that student's soul in the right direction. Now, what I'm trying to say here that, that Plato gets, and it may sound so simple, is that it's important for you as a teacher at the King's College and me as a teacher at Providence Christian College to have our students before us. It's important for all university educators to have their students before them, all K through 12 teachers to have their students before them, because it's that real life connection between us and them that helps turn their soul. And some of that perhaps can be done online. Uh, some of that can be reimagined or replicated through technology. But education is very much a human thing. It very much involves human development, human interaction that can't be replicated from afar. And I think about the same thing with church because you know, we're all grateful that those of us in places where you couldn't meet in person could have services streamed or recorded or things of that sort. And it's, it's definitely better than, than nothing. But it's not the same thing as being there, worshiping God together with the rest of the community that you gather with each week. And even aside the fellowship aspects of that, just the worship experience itself isn't replicated in you in your living room and this family in their living room, watching a pastor in another building give a sermon with a small group of people there providing technical support. That's not the same thing. That's not, not just the same experience, but not the same thing as a gathered worship service. And I think we can say something analogous about, about teaching and about the classroom experience versus other alternatives. Yeah, I mean, Plato was talking about better and worse. He was talking about teaching the young and how Socrates had taught him to make better decisions, what, what justice is, what injustice is. And that's a very intimate uh, experience that takes place. But if it doesn't take place, if the interaction isn't there, uh, if, if the reality of an education isn't there because you're not doing it in person, then a lot is lost. And uh, this moves on quickly to, to my second assignment. Whenever I've been thinking about anything these last uh, weeks and months, I always think about a Thomas Hobbes Leviathan. We have really bought in to the horror, the, the ever-present horror of death front and center in every decision we make. And that's exactly the education that Thomas Hobbes gives us in the Leviathan. Thomas Hobbes, uh, real quickly, modern political philosopher, had lived uh, through uh, the religious wars of the first half of the 17th century and believed that societies ought not to be built upon these aspirations for ancient virtue or for religion or whatever it may be, that we ought to uh, really kind of build society upon a lower, more stable foundation, and that is just our simple desire uh, to preserve our lives, to, to live long. Uh, Hobbes, you know, like the Bee Gees, said, we should stay alive and want to stay alive and thinking about 
staying alive at every turn of our lives. And the, the, the problem with that um, philosophy, as we've seen it played out in the modern world, is if all you care about is staying alive, then of what value has your life been? And I used to ask this of my King students, and I still ask it of my Providence students, is the best life the longest life? Or is the best life the best life? Uh, is the best life the life of the martyr? Is the best life the life of the individual who, yes, may go off to India and may catch a disease trying to share the gospel with someone else, but they lived a life in which they glorified God? Is every decision that we make, should it be based upon us living until 95, 100, 105? Because if that's the end goal of society, right, then you would judge human flourishing uh, simply by life expectancy. Well, one of the ironies is that I think we've become more obsessed with safety at a time when we're the safest we have been in, in all of human history. So we've, we, it's not, we're not responding. My point is we're not responding to the actual circumstances in which we live. We're responding to arguments like Hobbes. We're, we're buying into the materialist premises because if you're examining the actual circumstance in which we live, we'll be saying, wow, isn't it great? Life is so safe. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to prioritize that because I live in a world that is so much better. The medical care is so much superior to what it's been. I, I can focus. I've been freed up from that worry, which was an ever-present worry across so many generations of human history. I've been freed up from that to now go do an amazing things. And instead, because we've bought into this materialism, we're going the opposite direction. We're more safety conscious. We're, we're trying to eliminate risk when there's very little risk left to eliminate. Exactly. And I think so. That's a nice transition to my third reading, which we won't be able to do full coverage of. But I'd just say quickly, if you have never read C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, uh, in this time, it's essential that you do. Uh, I can't do justice to the three chapters in the book, but I, I can give you a general outline and, and kind of suggest to you why it, it would be great reading, not simply for this week and not simply on the topic of reopening schools, but on the topic of what we're after in life. I think that uh, C.S. Lewis clearly understands the type of education that Hobbes and some other modern political philosophers have put forth that uh, very much rises in opposition to the old education of trying to figure out what virtue is. Uh, for example, C.S. Lewis uh, references Augustine's uh, desire uh, in, in teaching uh, uh, children to give every object the degree of love which is appropriate to it. I mean, think about that, to, to, to love those things which you ought to love. That, that's a true education, uh, to have ordinate affections based upon the value of the thing. Um, likewise, Aristotle's um, a teaching uh, for us to, um, to have a sensibility as, as to what is right or wrong and that the educated person is the person who realizes um, just what those distinctions amount to. Uh, following forth from someone we just mentioned, uh, Plato and the Republic, in which uh, we want to teach our uh, young, our children, to distinguish between good and evil, um, injustice and injustice, because in making those distinctions, they then are able, they are then equipped to live uh, flourishing lives. And, and Lewis says that that old education has been set aside. It's been set aside for a variety of different reasons, but most importantly, um, and he argues, and this is kind of at the, at the end of, of the book, it's been set aside 
because we've been we've replaced that type of teaching about the world with a modern science in which we've tried to master nature. Uh, we've we've tried to so condition life uh, so that it's safe, so that we stop being human. Uh, and this, he argues at the end of this great book, uh, will be our undoing. That we may conquer nature, but in the end, our, in our desire to conquer nature, in our desire to conquer fear, in our desire to conquer risk, we will have conquered ourselves. That nature would have conquered us in turn. So uh, I haven't done full justice uh, to the book. We, we're kind of running out of time, but I would definitely recommend to, to all our listeners to, um, to pick that book up if you don't have it or to reread it again in light of our current events, because I think it'll put you in a good place, although a sober place, uh, as to where we're going and what we need to do to revive uh, the world around us. That's great. I think anything that disabuses us of this sense of sovereign power over the events of our lives, uh, that, that just one more expert panel, just one more finely crafted policy and all the troubles that we experience will be resolved and perhaps permanently resolved. Anything that, that helps us to, to clear that away and to begin to live human lives as those made in the image of God, but not God, as those uniquely made in the image of God with, with dominion over the creatures, this special place that human beings are located in, in God's ontology. This is, this is the lesson we need to take out of experiences like this so that we can live the lives that we're actually able to live well and to appreciate the blessing of the life that we've been given. Amen. Well, it's time to open the grade book as we do each week. And this week, we've decided we're going to look at the leading contenders for the Democratic vice presidential nomination from the perspective of Joe Biden. So we're not evaluating them from the standpoint of our own political understanding of, of these individuals and whether we would want them to be president or vice president or anything of that sort. But what, looking at them from the standpoint of what, what value do they bring to a Biden ticket? And what wisdom would there be from his perspective in choosing them? So we've got, according to the latest odds on this, the, the three leading candidates are uh, Kamala Harris, Susan Rice, and Tammy Duckworth. And, you know, I think if you look over the history of vice presidential nominations, at least the last, say, half century or so, there's really three kinds of vice presidential nominations. You've got the party uniter. So 1980, Ronald Reagan chooses his principal rival, George H.W. Bush. Second option is what you might call the steady hand. So George W. Bush, younger, uh, less experienced, at least in terms of foreign affairs, chooses Dick Cheney, the seasoned veteran, to kind of balance the ticket and kind of shore up perhaps those moderate independent voters who are wondering if he's really ready for the office. Then you've got third option, what you might call the partisan puncher, that vice presidential candidate who's willing to say the thing the presidential candidate either 
doesn't want to say or won't say, maybe somebody like Sarah Palin, chosen by John McCain. Uh, obviously, she was somebody that excited a lot of conservatives as well, but her role in that campaign was to be the one who, who tried to land the punches uh, against Barack Obama and Joe Biden as the vice presidential candidate. So if we think about those three categories, I think we have one of each of these actually um, on this list. So let's start with Kamala Harris. What do you think about her as a vice presidential choice for Joe Biden, Dave? I give that choice a, a B minus. I think that she certainly uh, would uh, inspire uh, a certain percentage of, of the uh, Democratic base, uh, uh, specifically those who, uh, A, would like to have an African-American on the ticket, and B, would like to also have a, a woman on the ticket. I think that's a, those are two very important factors for a good part of the Democratic constituency. So if, if, if picking that type of person unifies the party, um, and and balances the ticket uh, in, in part, then I, I think that she could be a good choice uh, for um, for Biden. I do think it's kind of a little bit of weird to say this. That I, I do think that Elizabeth Warren would also perform that function um, as well. When you go through each of your three um, types of uh, beep choices, the party uniter, steady hand, or partisan puncher, that the individual to me that seems to have a little bit of all those three parts to her is Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I, I give uh, uh, Kamala Harris a, a B, but I think Warren may be as equally the party uniter as, as Harris could be, if not more. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because she's the favorite. Is there something there that led to that failure of her own presidential campaign? And then if you add the fact that she was best known before she came to the Senate, you know, first term senator, as attorney general in California and the DA in San Francisco, both positions that are going to sit a little uncomfortably with a lot of the Democratic Party in this present moment. I, I'm going to give that one a C minus. I don't think it's a great choice for him. All right, so let's let's now turn our attention to Susan Rice. What do you think about her as a possible candidate? I mean, I think better in some ways, if, if you're thinking of her as the steady hand, I, I think that at least she has the foreign policy credentials or street creed. She's had positions uh, that, that could satisfy uh, not merely uh, the Democratic base, but some of the neocon base, um, moderate to liberal Republicans, et cetera. But there are you know, many an issue with Susan Rice um, not the least of which is uh, the, the Flynn investigation, et cetera, that I think could really trip her up. And and if you if there was something that was coming out of this report to be released by um, the Justice Department uh, that even touched upon her involvement uh, with with the whole Flynn case, I could see that uh, being uh, very detrimental to the Biden campaign. He wants to kind of get. He I think in many ways he wants to remove all of those foreign policy connections from anything that he's going to do. Uh, moving forward. So that's why I probably would, would say that uh, Susan Rice would be like a C plus for me as a, as a choice. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think a little better of that choice, partly because as I think about what he needs, I think to the degree that he gets out there on the campaign and once the debates happen, it's really going to be impossible to disguise the fact that he is not in full possession of the strength that he had eight or 10 years ago. You, you know, think? Right? Yeah. Do you so, really? No. So, you know, you're thinking about if, if he doesn't, if the, if the poll numbers stay about what they are, 
he's not thinking, well, I better unite my party because if I don't have my party united, I can't possibly carry this election. I got to you know, build from my base. If he feels like he has his base shored up and now he's fighting for those moderates, then he's thinking about how do I reassure people that if I'm not up to the task six months in my presidency, that the person who's going to step in is a person that seems like they're capable of being president. And I think of the people on this list, Susan Rice is the easiest to imagine that position because the thing that you always worry about is that foreign policy crisis. You know, we, we think about there's other problems of the world, but, but it's the foreign policy crisis and somebody that has the reputation for being able to handle those things is back in the Clinton administration, Obama administrations, long time experience, only 55, so relatively young herself. I think that's the profile of somebody. If I'm confident as Biden that my move right now is to reach out toward the middle and to, to win those persuadable independents and moderates, Susan Rice feels like the one who's going to get me the most uh, share of that vote in, in November. So I'm going to give that one a B plus. All right. Lastly, Tammy Duckworth, who wouldn't have been on this list probably even three or four weeks ago, but has made a recent play being out there and certainly elevated her profile. What about her as a possible running mate for Joe Biden? I think that uh, she's definitely ascended uh, quickly through the ranks, uh, Congresswoman, Senator, et cetera. But I, I just, um, I, I think that there is a, uh, a good CV there, but just not that experience. So I, I probably would hold off on someone who is really um, trying to become that, um, you know, fighting spirit for you, uh, a la Sarah Palin, but, but may not be ready uh, for, for the big league. So I, I'd, I'd give that a, a D. And, and then I just I, I hit, said this before, but I think that the candidate to me that checks off each of these three boxes best as a, as a person is Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I think she rubs a lot of people the wrong way, um, including me. But I think that she for, for the type of person that uh, Joe Biden ought to be looking for, uh, I think she, he couldn't do any better than, than Warren, who to me would be an A minus. So on each of these three fronts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you on, on um, Senator Duckworth. I, I think, you know, she's certainly auditioning, it seems, for the role of the partisan puncher. I don't think that's the role that Biden really needs for this campaign. I mean, I think his overall approach is going to be, I'm the one who doesn't punch. And so I don't, I don't think that the profile that she's presenting is the one that he's necessarily looking for. And I also don't think it's likely to be attractive to that Again, that, that voter who's worried about, well, what if something happens and Joe Biden can't be president? It's not obvious in the same way that, say, a Susan Rice or Elizabeth Warren that, that she's ready to step in. She's two terms in the House, first term senator, um, but, but doesn't have the broader experience, perhaps, that you would expect somebody to have who was sort of a natural fit for the White House in a crisis situation. So if I'm understanding you correctly, Matt, what you're saying is that you think that Joe Biden has kind of a weekend at Bernie's problem. Remember that movie? <laughs> so it's kind of weekend at Biden's. Like, is he truly alive? <laughs> he's he's, he's going to need to choose someone to make sure that it's not weekend at Biden's. I, I, just, I just think that's, that's, his, that's his obvious weakness, right? Okay. His, his weakness is his weakness. Okay. And so he needs to assure people that if he's not able to carry out the four years of the job that the person who's next in line will be up to the task. 
All right. So we're going to wrap up the show as we do each week with de Tocqueville's crystal ball. Each week we make predictions and then we see who's closer to being right. This week, it was pretty much neither of us. So the question was, who would win the Alabama Republican primary runoff between Tommy Tuberville and Jeff Sessions? I said Tuberville by six points. Dave said a narrow win for Sessions. Well, I was closer, but Tuberville won by over 20 points. So those polls that we were talking about from way back in March were basically all we needed to predict the race four months later. I so, need the Premier League again, Matt. I, you've got to get us back to like, <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, these are uh, doing, uh, uh, making predictions about things we teach are hard, but uh, about subjects that are foreign to us. Right. The easier. things that we really know, um, right. <laughs> yeah. Sports. So, so in keeping with that, uh, we predicted the first two Premier League matches back when they reopened several weeks ago. And finally, we are about to have baseball back. Lord willing, next Thursday night, there will be the first two Major League Baseball games of this very shortened season. So if we did the Premier League, we've got to do Major League Baseball. We are going to predict the outcome of two games that are actually going to matter quite a bit. It's a game season, right? Every single game is going to count on the standings. So we've got, first of all, the Yankees at the Nationals, obviously defending World Series champion Nationals. And, of course, the team in the American League, a lot of people think is going to be representing that league in the World Series this year. And a fantastic pitching matchup. Garrett Cole, last year's Cy Young runner-up, really two phenomenal seasons in Houston against Max Scherzer, who just year after year puts in amazing performances, American League, now National League. So this is, this is a great game. If you're just a baseball fan, this is a great game. What do you think, Dave? Give me a, a winner and a score. Uh, Nationals win 7-3. Uh, Scherzer pitches well, uh, maybe gives up a run or two, uh, and then uh, they get the runs and, and, and beat the Yankees. All okay, right. You got to pick against the Yankees. I mean, I like the outcome for sure. Yeah. I think it's going to be a lower scoring game. I think they probably won't go more than about five innings apiece for the starters. And both teams have pretty solid bullpens. So I'm going to, I'm going to think it's, I'm going to predict Nationals three, Yankees two. All right. The second game is more of a classic rivalry. I guess another New York City connection if you go back to the 1950s. Giants at the Dodgers. Not quite the quality of the pitching matchup. Well, Clayton Kershaw is there for the Dodgers, so he's certainly the equal career-wise of, of Cole and Scherzer. But Johnny Cueto for the Giants, coming off two years of injuries where he's only started 13 games the last two seasons. He's had some good years in the past, but it's really been about four years since he was just sort of classic ace opening day starter. So – Obviously, the Dodgers are your favorite in the National League overall. The pitching matchup got to be the favorites here. Kershaw is coming off his worst season of his career, in which he was 16 and five with a 3.03 ERA. So we'd all like to have that be the worst year of our baseball career. Uh, what do you think, Dave? Giants at Dodgers. Do we get a surprise here, or does historic form hold true? I'll tell you one thing. I'm going to bet on the Dodgers every game they play this year. I think they, <laughs> okay. I think they have uh, the, the best bets. team. They, they, yeah. they pretty much uh, check off every box. And, and I love Kershaw as well. 
I haven't been able to adopt a, an LA team, but I think that uh, if I if I were to, it'd be the Dodgers. So, yeah, uh, the Dodgers Dodgers take this one. Uh, I'm going to say eight two. So uh, they they've got the bats and and uh, Kershaw pitches well, and it's a good start to the Dodgers season. Yeah, the Dodgers really are are stacked, and you know if Kershaw could ever get over his postseason hump and lead them to glory that would be the kind of the final the final step in his road to Cooperstown he's certainly done all the things you can expect anybody to do in the regular season I don't think there's gonna be any surprises here I agree with you I think it's going to be a a big LA win I'm going to say uh, seven to four I think there'll be a few runs uh, late Perhaps Kershaw might be a little bit rusty starting off, so I don't think he'll be quite his old dominant self. But seven to four, Dodgers on their way. They will not go sixty and zero, but uh, they might win forty five. So we'll we'll see. Speaking of which, our next show, our next show, as all of sports are coming back in about a ten day span, we're having Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL, and the opening of NFL training camps. We are doing an Return of Sports special next week. So if that's your favorite part of the show, get ready. If that's the part that you fast forward through, sorry. Catch up on an old episode. We'll be back with you with more politics in two weeks. Please continue to pass along the podcast to others. We'd love to be able to reach out more beyond our immediate networks and connect with those who are interested in these kinds of political questions. Please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Love to get you to review the podcast as well. That helps to spread the word. And in the meantime, uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week.